Well, it's a super day, regardless of football, right? And it's a super day because of who we know. We know the God of the universe, and we know his son, the Lord Jesus, who gives us life. We've just celebrated that. And he's given us his word that we might know him better. And so we're going to head off in that direction, church family. Our journey with an amazing Old Testament character named Elijah continues today as we step into a brand new chapter. And I would invite you then to join me in the book of 1 Kings once again and chapter 19 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll share a copy of God's Word with you. There's a little note page in your bulletin. would invite you to also grab that and have that handy. Uh, it'll be a help along the way. And allow me just to read for us, beginning 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, the next part of the story of Elijah's life that we've been sharing together over these weeks. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. We're going to stop right there. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come now and bring the truth of your word into our lives. We don't want to be hearers of it only, we want to be doers of it. Yes, church family? Amen. Amen, indeed. You know, when I read this part of Elijah's unfolding story, there is a question that comes to my mind. And the question goes something like this. If the Bible had been written by strictly human authors, without the divine supervision of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit upon it, do you suppose that the the opening verses of this 19th chapter that we've just read would have been included in Elijah's story if it just had human origins, you think? My suspicion is no, it would not have been included. Elijah, the man without equal in chapter 19, standing on Mount Carmel and calling down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice in that great contest, is here in chapter 19 a mere shadow of that man. And so unexpectedly sudden is this change that occurs within him between chapter 18 and chapter 19 that we find ourselves asking, is this even the same guy? Is this really the same Elijah that we have been spending 
time with now and traveling with over the last several weeks, studying him and, and trying to learn from him, is this even the same guy? And the answer, of course, is yes. But we kind of scratch our heads somewhat mystified. Because what a collision of confusing impressions confront us as we come into chapter 19. We've been with Elijah in, in, in his shining best for several weeks. And now, here in chapter 19, it might be the lowest and most desperate, darkest point of his life. And it all happened in just a moment. In chapter 18, his prayer is for the repentance and the conversion of his people, Israel. In chapter 19, though, he deserts his own people in order to save his own skin. In chapter 18, he stands toe-to-toe with 850 false prophets to a pagan god with great courage. In chapter 19, he runs from the threat that is voiced from one woman. In chapter 18, he prays for God to bring down fire from heaven and vindicate himself before Israel and vindicate his servant. And and yet in 19, he prays that God would, would take his life because he's done. In chapter 18, he believes that God will will bring an end to this long drought that has afflicted the nation for three and a half years. And yet in chapter 19, he is so desperate that there's a drought of faith in his own soul. And at the close of 18, he runs before the chariot of Ahab with defiant courage and confidence. But in chapter 19, he runs for his life out of genuine fear. Is this really the same Elijah? It really is. And perhaps you, like me, find somewhat a a strange sense of relief that that is the case. A closer connection with Elijah, we feel, perhaps because of what happens to him here in chapter 19. And if so, the reason is not hard to figure out. Elijah is like us. He has his moments of strength and power and an honorable difference-making service for his God, but then there'll be other moments in his life when he stumbles and he crumbles and his faith falters. Does that happen to you? That happens to me. And although it would be wrong to be glad when a fellow God follower crashes and burns, I am strangely relieved that this moment in Elijah's life is not hidden from us because we can relate to this. Mountaintops and valleys, right? Moments of great faith and moments when our faith just seems to escape us. James 5.17 says that Elijah was a man with a nature like what? Like ours. Like ours. He is like us, brothers and sisters. Not a whitewashed super saint that lives in in the stratosphere of faith and trust that we will never reach. He is a guy just like us. And the 19th chapter of First Kings brings that out. So, so step with me now into this scene, faithfully preserved for us, and let's see what we can learn together in this time in Elijah's life. By way of review, on Mount Carmel, a great contest has, has just occurred, uh, answering the question for the nation of Israel as to who is really God. Yahweh Elohim is really God. Elijah then prays after that moment when God brings down the fire. Elijah prays for rain to come and end this this terrible three and a half years of drought. 
And then in verse 45, we read that the cloud of chapter 18, we read that the clouds appear, the wind begins to blow, and sure enough, man, the rain comes, and oh boy, does it come. The wicked king Ahab gets into his chariot at that point, and he, he races for home, powered by his champion horse, as we read at the end of chapter 18. 25 miles to Jezreel at full gallop. Elijah follows shortly after him, but then overtakes him by divine power, right? He runs on foot, and he catches up, and then outruns Ahab to Jezreel. By now it's dark. It's been raining hard for some time. At the palace, Ahab's equally evil queen, Jezebel, has been uh, waiting all day long for the outcome of this great contest to be revealed. Apparently, she felt unwilling to lower herself to go to Mount Carmel and be a part of that moment. So she's trusting that her beloved prophets, Baal and Asherah, have won the day. And she has watched now as the dark clouds have rolled over the horizon and the rain has begun to fall. To her, it's the long-awaited answer that her gods, Baal and Asherah, have won the day. Elijah has found shelter somewhere in the city of Jezreel. Ahab enters the royal palace. He's soaking wet. His hair is matted and, and dripping, and he's feeling the exhaustion of this day and with all of its events. Jezebel runs up to him with a big smile, embraces him even though he's soaking wet, and then with a bit of creative license, the following dialogue might have happened. Oh, Hab, honey, I couldn't wait for you to get home. The rain has told me in advance that it has been a good day, a great day for us and our gods. I have nothing to tell you that will make you happy, he says. What do you mean? What's happened? Well, the worst thing that could possibly have happened has happened. What? What? What do you mean? Where are my prophets? You're never going to see them again, Jezebel. Never see them again? What are you talking about? Don't play games with me, Ahab. No, it's, it's true. They're all dead. All 850 of them are dead. Well, by now, the rain has actually turned that brook Kishon into a torrent. Their bodies have been washed out to sea. No, it's not true. Yes, it is true. And with a face that is now twisted into a contorted rage, she says, who has dared to do this thing? Did they defend themselves? Did you defend them? Who did this? Was it that demon Elijah? It was Elijah, Ahab says. Elijah and his God, who answered by fire. The next thing I know, all of Israel's ready to do Elijah's bidding. If I had tried to stop him from putting the, the Baal prophets to death, I would be dead right now too. And he goes on to recount the whole day to her with, with each sentence she becomes more and, and more enraged like a mother bear whose cubs have been taken from her. She calls in a servant and tells him to relay a message to that treacherous Elijah. Tell him that by tomorrow night he will be a dead man. Well, that's the Westcott version of verse 2. The servant heads out into the rainy night. He finds Elijah and he repeats the charge. Tomorrow night by this time you will be a dead man. Order Queen, Queen Jezebel. The servant leaves and Elijah is left standing there 
with his attendant, his servant. No doubt the spirit-inspired writer of 1 Kings would write the next sentence, verse 3, with a heavy hand. Then Elijah was what? Afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Elijah stayed in Jezreel only as long as it took him to pack his suitcase. In fact, he doesn't even have a suitcase, so it didn't take him even that long. Through the night, through the rain, he runs. And man, this guy knows how to run, right? He can outrun horses and chariots. And apparently so can his servant, his attendant. He heads south to Beersheba, some 100 miles from Jezreel. And, and completely runs out of, of Jezebel's territory, her jurisdiction. He runs into the territory of Judah. But Beersheba is not far enough away for his liking. And so he leaves his servant there, and he goes still farther into the Sinai Desert. Verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. That's it, he says. That's it. God, put me out of my misery and let me die in this wasteland as my forefathers did during the Exodus. I've had enough. I'm done. Elijah, a man with a nature like ours. Yes. But why did this happen to him, church family? Why did this happen to him? What things conspired to make this chapter a reality in one of the Bible's greatest heroes? Elijah is throwing in the prophetic towel here. And not because God said, Elijah, it's time. You've done all that I've asked you to do. You're done. No, it's not because of that. He intends intends to leave his servant in Beersheba because he's through. He's done. I'm not coming back. I'm going out into the desert to die. What has happened to Elijah between chapter 18 and chapter 19? I mean, he was God's bold mouthpiece back in chapter 17, bringing on this drought, confronting the king. God used him to bring a dead boy back to life in that chapter. And then in chapter 19, man, or chapter 18, he is that firebrand who calls down uh, the Lord's fire from heaven on that showdown on Mount Carmel. And, and yet now here in chapter 19, he's barely a spark of a man. What has happened to Elijah? The short answer, his faith falters, doesn't it? That's what happens. His faith and his trust in his great and mighty God has grown weak. His faith evaporates and fear fills the space that's left. And church family, because we have the advantage of of an outside looking in perspective, I think that together we can isolate some of the major contributors or causes, if you will, that ultimately led to this crisis of faith this inexplicable U-turn in Elijah's life. And, and, and brothers and sisters, man, if, if, if Elijah could plummet from the heights of Mount Carmel down to the depths of the desert of Sinai to die, and he can do that almost overnight, so can we, right? 
so can we. So let's take a closer look at what contributed to Elijah's faith crisis, but let's do that by considering it from a more proactive perspective. The title to the morning's message, as you see it there on your page, is When Faith Falters. And that would be if we were looking strictly at Elijah. But let's take a proactive thought, and with, the, with what's on your note page there, let's, let's spin that around and think about before faith falters, what can we do to protect ourselves? Let's learn from Elijah and put this on a, in a more proactive direction. If you look at your note page, first, we must always be alert to the devil's schemes if we're going to be ahead of the faith-faltering curve. Be alert to the devil's schemes. Fellow Christian, while we, we live out our faith in a very physical, material world of sights and sounds and touch and feel, the place where the real faith battles in your life and my life uh, take place is not in the physical realm, but in what realm? In the spiritual realm. The Holy Spirit reminds us of that multiple times in the scriptures. But through the pen of the Apostle Paul, one of the best places to be reminded of that is out of Ephesians chapter 6. Verses that you would know well. Verses 10 to 12. Paul writes that church family. And he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the, de- the schemes of who? The devil. Who's our enemy? The devil is our enemy. Who was Elijah's enemy? It wasn't Queen Jezebel. It was Satan himself. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The spiritual realm. That's where the real faith battles are fought. The Apostle Peter would affirm that with his words out of 1 Peter 5.8. Some of you have memorized this verse, no doubt. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Right this moment, what is Satan actively doing with respect to you? He is prowling around looking to devour you. He's doing that right now. He will do that today. He'll do that tomorrow. He's looking to destroy you. Where's the real battle in your, in your Christian life? It's in the spirit realm, isn't it? Satan and his demonic forces are the real enemy of every true Jesus follower. And we must never forget that, church family, or take that truth lightly, because if we do, then we're going to be right where Elijah is at in this moment in 19. Satan is an unimaginably skilled, crafty, powerful enemy. He has been overcome by Jesus and by his cross and by the resurrection, which we just celebrated around the Lord's table. And we say, praise God for that. Praise God that that is true. But only by staying close to Jesus and alert to the lion's schemes do we stand a chance. And thinking of the lion's schemes, let's not miss this in Elijah's faith-faltering crisis. Some of the most intense or severe challenges to our faith, yours and mine, comes on the heels of some of the great and significant moments of our spiritual lives. That's what happens here with Elijah. After great victories in the service of God, when, when, when his people have been mightily used, it's often right after those times if you stop and think about it, that the enemy sees an opportunity to take you out. 
That's Elijah. Tremendous victory by God on Mount Carmel that that afternoon as God used Elijah in that moment. An attack of some kind by Satan might be expected following a great moment like that. And his attack comes in the form of a lie from Queen Jezebel. No surprise, really, since Jesus calls Satan a liar and the father of lies, right? James chapter, or in John chapter 8. I mean, Jezebel's enraged. We know her to be a woman of unrivaled wickedness. She's sold out to her false gods, Baal and Asherah. For years, she has been working hard to establish them in Israel. The nation has bought into her false idols. She is delighted by this, and of course, so is Satan. God's people have forsaken the true God. They're chasing these these false gods. And now Elijah comes along, and he threatens all of that. He undermines her efforts, discredits her gods, kills her beloved prophets. But more than that, Elijah threatens her hold on the people, her position as queen. The people are now following the word of Elijah on the mountain. He represents the true God. And under his leadership and direction, a real purging of the land spiritually has taken place. 850 prophets to Baal have been taken out. Spiritual renewal can occur as the people now turn back to Yahweh. So Jezebel has to act fast. She issues this death threat against Elijah in verse 2. But here's the thing, church family. She did not dare to kill Elijah. The people are behind him. He's the man of the hour. She cannot risk murdering him or the people might turn on her. So what does she do? She sends a messenger with a threat of death, right? when she could just as easily have sent a band of her most loyal thugs to kill Elijah right then and there. That's not what she does. 24 hours, Elijah. That's what you've got, and then you're dead. Isn't that interesting? What is that? It's a lie. It's a lie that comes from where? The father of lies. He just uses Jezebel. And and that lie is going to create fear and get Elijah to run and it will cause him to run completely out of Israel into a foreign land and the people will be left without a leader. Jezebel is absolved of any crime and she can begin to repair the damage that Elijah has caused. She was the tool of Satan in the life of Elijah, a well-conceived lie. I will kill you tomorrow. And Elijah runs in fear. Boy, church family, how radically different might Israel's national story have have read had Elijah stayed and challenged the, the threat of Jezebel, the lie. He had the momentum of the nation behind him. The people were ready to... to to follow Yahweh Elohim. They had cried out at the end of chapter 18, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They shouted that on Mount Carmel, but they need Elijah's leadership in this moment, his direction and his spirit. Without that, they will soon forget the day and they will sign back on with Jezebel. Now, perhaps you and me would have expected Elijah in chapter 19 to receive this threat from Jezebel and and because of what we have known of him in the moments leading up to this, he would have then with quiet confidence just put that, that, that lie before the Lord 
And because God took, takes care of him and will continue to take care of him, he just deals with that with an incredible faith. But he fell victim to the lion's scheme and to a lie. And his heart was filled with fear. Jezebel's death threat really had no substance. She couldn't go up against God, but it was a lie that created fear and it distracted God's men at the most crucial hour. And when Israel needed him most, what happens? He runs away. Can that happen to you and me? The lies of the enemy come to us and fill our hearts with fear and we miss out on great moments. Before faith falters, let's be alert to our real enemy who prowls around in the unseen realm and loves to use lies to create fear. Let's remember that. Let's learn from Elijah. And then if you flip your note page over, before faith can falter, let's pay attention to our physical condition. There's no doubt that God had called Elijah into an incredibly demanding task as as his mouthpiece, his prophet to a, a spiritually rebellious Israel. It would have been a huge drain on anybody spiritually, but also emotionally and physically to do what Elijah is being asked to do. Challenge the king of Israel. Condemn his sin to his face. Then, then go live alone in the desert during a severe drought. Care for a widow and her child. That's, that's heavy stuff. That's demanding stuff. And then the contest on Mount Carmel, man alive, the emotional and physical energy that that day alone would have required, starting early and going until late, and ending with a 25-mile run in the rain? Who wouldn't be wiped out by all of that? Now, for all of the mystery that surrounds the interplay between our spiritual and our physical lives, brothers and sisters, One thing that we have all in this room who know Jesus, one thing we have all learned the hard way is that when we become physically and emotionally exhausted, we become spiritually vulnerable, right? Would you affirm that? That's from your life experience, isn't it? Well, that's that's Elijah's life experience. Look at the free information that we get in verses 5 and 6 concerning this part of his, his story. Elijah runs 100 miles to Beersheba and then another day into the desert by himself. Verse 5 then says, and he laid down and he what? He slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Ah, Interesting. And verse 6, he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and he drank and he laid down and slept again. What this tells us is, is that part of what contributes to Elijah's flagging faith in this critical hour is that he is utterly exhausted physically. You know, when someone comes to to me seeking counsel for a spiritual struggle that they might be having. You know, one of the first questions that I will ask after they have shared where they're at and what's going on and what they're they're, they're dealing with is, I'll ask the question, hey, how are you sleeping? How's your appetite? Uh, um, How would you assess your current physical health? 
Now, those questions are born out of years and years and years of incredible pastoral training in the field of counseling. <laughs> right? No. No, it's kindergarten stuff. It's stuff that you know. It, 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 there's nothing scientific or spiritual about that. So often, brothers and sisters, our spiritual outlook, our spiritual condition is really a reflection of our physical condition at times. In this age of fast pace, high stress, never stop, got to push, got to perform living that we can be drawn into, it is amazing that not more Christians hit the skids with their faith because they're simply exhausted emotionally and physically. Not really spiritual issues. It's just physical and emotional exhaustion. Notice how God identifies the exhaustion of his servant Elijah and in a very tender way addresses it. It's, it's really sweet. It's, it's beautiful. Elijah literally collapses under a tree and the Lord sends one of his own, an angel from heaven, to care for him. It's great. Hot bread, refreshing water, and sleep. Not once, but twice. When Elijah's faith takes a nosedive, isn't it fascinating that it was God's preliminary prescription to, to help him have a comeback to simply water him, feed him, and let him rest? That's the prescription for a spiritual comeback. God knows what we forget, that in our world, it can sure look different when you're physically rested. Jesus was certainly aware of this truth in his own circle of friends, his disciples. Check this verse out. It's Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Then because so many people were coming and going that the disciples did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me, that's important, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some what? Rest. Nothing scientific or super spiritual about that. And so this morning, if perhaps your faith or your joy in the Lord are taking a hit and, 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 and you're finding it hard to, to trust your God or, or to serve Him or to do anything spiritually centered, maybe what you really need to do is nothing more than stop and slow down and rest. Regroup and recoup, right? Maybe the, the best thing you could do is simply go to your Heavenly Father and say, man, would a vacation be good for me? <laughs> right? <laughs> he might say, absolutely, let's make that happen together. Right? Because he knows that's what you need. Well, then a third contributor to a faltering faith and something that we see here in Elijah is that we need to be, a, be wary of, of going solo, going alone. Elijah wasn't just the target of Satan, and he wasn't just physically exhausted. He's also feeling very alone. He isolates himself. Verse 3, Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And what does the next part of that say? He left his servant there. Verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he's all by himself. In other words, Elijah isolates himself. And in the midst of all of that, brothers and sisters, there's only one person who he's hearing. And who is that? It's himself. 
He's hearing himself. In this place, the only press reports that are being written are the ones that he writes. And it leads to a loss of perspective. He begins to see himself and only himself. Verses 9 and 10 point that out to us. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't that an interesting question? It, it implies that he's not supposed to be there, right? What are you doing here, Elijah? You're not supposed to be here. Elijah then says, I have been very, je- I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altar, killed your prophets with the sword, and I even, I only am left, and they seek my life. To take it away. Who is he thinking about? He's totally focused on himself. Bottom line, we are vulnerable to that when we go solo. But it's often what we do when we're hurting or we're in trouble or we're afraid. Maybe we don't want us to see us in that kind of a condition spiritually. We, we, we don't want to see us afraid. Or maybe we can tough it out, we think, and, and we'll muscle our way through it or Or we don't want to bother others with our struggles. We're good at that thought. Then we do the very opposite of what we should do when we're in that place where faith is really struggling. What we do is we go solo. And we put distance between ourselves and brothers and sisters in Jesus who could really be a help to us. And as a consequence of that, we weaken faith's resolve and we begin to focus on ourselves. And that is never good. Never good. It's never God-honoring. And that is really reflected in God's penetrating question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah has come down with a bad case of knees and eyes. You ever heard of that affliction? It's not in any medical journal, but it really does exist. Knees and eyes. And he's got it bad. You know, it's been said that one of the hidden costs of godliness can be loneliness. And there's no question that when God called Elijah to be his prophet and he confronted the king and he forecast the drought and he became Israel's most wanted, most hated man, that was a lonely time in his life, for sure. No one dared to get close. Clearly, he feels that even more now after Jezebel's death threat. He feels really alone. But you know, the human spirit can endure an incredible amount when it can endure it with someone else. Someone says, well, he had a servant, didn't he? And he left him behind. He did have a servant, church family, but but company doesn't always mean companionship. And maybe that's it. For reasons we're not told, Elijah felt alone. The only one that he can see in this moment is himself. He forgets that his God has never left him, not for one moment, But the me's and eyes of isolation have stolen his focus. Weakened his faith. And you and I need to know that can happen to us too. Right? Before faith falters, we must avoid that inclination, which I believe is a natural part of our fallen nature, that inclination to go solo. And then speaking of a stolen uh, focus, last there on your page, before faith falters, we would do well to take care of what we are looking at. 
What I mean by that is, as we observe Elijah in this place, he has taken his eyes off of his God, and he's looking at everything else around him, his circumstances. Early on, we saw this man emerge from this little town called Tishbe, consumed with a passion for the glory and the honor of God. With his eyes riveted upon Yahweh, he stands fearlessly before the king and and calls him a sinner and a scourge on the nation. But he's focusing on his God as he does that. He pronounces out a drought, and with his eyes looking to God, he heads out into the desert of Brook Kareth, and he doesn't have any problem going out there because he's focused on his God. He doesn't care about the drought. He doesn't care about the desert. He then goes to Zarephath and, and, and cares for that widow, and then it's up onto the Mount Carmel moment where fire is called down from heaven, and then he prays for rain, and in all of these places, his eyes are riveted in one place. They're riveted upon his God. But when he comes down off the heights of Mount Carmel, there is this one moment where he makes a momentary glance to the side and he catches Jezebel and he hears her words. By tomorrow, you're a dead man. And in that moment, his eyes aren't on the Lord. They're on his circumstances His heart fails him. His faith fails him. And fear comes in to fill the space. And sadly, from experience, each one of us could give testimony to the heartache and the disappointment and the damaging toll that a sideways glance at circumstances can bring into your life and to your faith. Agreed? We all can tell that story. None is is more memorable than the one that occurs in the life of Peter on that night in Matthew chapter 14 that you know very well. Peter's out on on Lake Galilee with his companions in a boat. Jesus is not with them. And a storm unfolds on the lake. And it's the middle of the night. And Jesus comes walking on the water. Remember this? Comes walking on the water. Peter's in the boat. He sees Jesus. He says, can I come to you, Lord? And Jesus says, come on, man. Get out of that boat. And Peter steps over the rail of the, of the boat and onto the water. And, man, it is solid, right? And then he steps a foot away. And, and he's still got his hand on the boat. But his eyes are riveted on Jesus. And then he steps another foot away. And he lets go of the railing of the boat. And his eyes are riveted on Jesus. And what does he do? He walks on water. The only person other than Jesus to ever have done such a thing. And when he's fully outside the boat, he looks for just a moment away from Jesus, takes a sideways glance, a lightning bolt illuminates the sea, he sees the stormy water, and what happens? Verse 30, chapter 14. But when he saw the wind, the effects of the wind, when he, when he saw those circumstances, he was what? What's the next word? He was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? As long as faith stayed focused on Jesus and not on the circumstances, Peter walked on water that felt under his feet like concrete, right? But the moment that he took his eyes off Jesus, man, he sinks like a stone. 
And that's what happens to Elijah. The only difference between Elijah and Peter is that Elijah wasn't in a boat. He's under a bush. But it's the same thing. And it's the same thing when it happens to you and me. That sideways glance onto circumstances deals a staggering blow to our faith. F.B. Meyer, a well-known preacher of, of the last century, says this. So good. He says, let us refuse to look at circumstances, though they roll before us as an angry sea and howl around us like a storm. Circumstances, natural impossibilities, difficulties are nothing to the soul that is occupied with God. They are as small dust specks that settle on a scale. They're not even to be considered. Oh, people of God, get up onto the high mountain from which you may obtain a good view of the glorious land of God's promises and refuse to have your gaze diverted by man or by things below. Isn't that good? That's it. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, not on our circumstances. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's like his brothers and sisters. And that is good in that we can look to him and we can identify with him. But let's look at him in order to learn from him. Learn what to do and what, how to be on lookout for those things that will keep our faith from faltering. Alert to who our real enemy is and to his schemes. Mindful of our own physical and emotional condition. Aware uh, of the hazards of going alone, going solo and keeping our eyes riveted on our Savior and not on our circumstances. That's a prescription for a stable faith. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this part of Elijah's story. Thank you for not hiding it from us or keeping it from us in any way. And Lord, I would just come before you with a sincere prayer for our church family, for my friends in this room. Lord, help us. We are so vulnerable to these these traps to our faith. And, and we would just tell you that without your help, we will step into any of these, maybe all of these. And so we ask you by your spirit to, to not let us just be hearers today, but doers of your word and stay ahead of this, this curve of, of, of keeping us a strong and focused faith on you. For any in this room right now, Heavenly Father, who might be battling uh, with, a, with a tired faith, and, and, and they're just wondering about how to do the next day. Lord, may you take these truths, encourage their hearts, and help us to encourage them as well. Let's do life together, Lord, with you and with each other. For your glory we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Church family, let's stand.